Hi, welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, and welcome to our Re-Air Summer. Summer is associated with transformation, personal development, and a sense of renewal before the new academic year begins. Our team at Stanford Psychology Podcast decided to take some time off, but don't worry, we are not going into radio silence. Instead, for every week until September 20th, we will air some of our favorite episodes around the topics related to personal development and self-improvement. We hope you will like it, and please don't hesitate to be in touch if you have any ideas for how our show can be improved in the new academic year. Thank you so much, and here's the episode. Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where this week I was really excited to be talking with Josh Green, professor of psychology at Harvard. Josh is a leading researcher of moral judgment and is the author of Moral Tripes. Several graduating classes have named him their favorite professor at Harvard. In this chat, I asked Josh how he has raised over $2 million for charity through a project he called Giving Multiplier and how all of you listeners can be part of this exciting project and do some good in the world very effectively, even with a higher matching rate than you would get otherwise if you donate through this podcast. In this episode, Josh also shares how he is trying to fight polarization with games, how to do the most good as a researcher, why cooperation is the story of life, what his next book is going to be about, the future of moral psychology, and how his thinking has changed since he first started thinking about moral philosophy in high school. Hope you enjoy. Today on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am very honored, flattered, excited to be talking with Josh Green about effective giving and morality and the science of good and evil. Seems like a big agenda. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is a great honor and I'm excited to, to talk to you. I want to start out by doing something we have never done on the podcast, which is to read your paper to you and our audience. Not the full oh, paper, boy. but... <laughs> You recently published a paper that I think opens in a way that really sets the mood and makes clear how important these topics are that we will be talking about today. So we will be linking to this paper, but the paper is called Boosting the Impact of Charitable Giving with Donation Bundling and Micromatching. And in the introduction, you and your student, Lucius Caviola, you say, quote, each year, hundreds of thousands of people die from malaria Millions suffer from debilitating parasitic worm infections, and more than a million lose vision due to trachoma. These diseases can be prevented at low cost. Consequently, charities focused on these problems can be hundreds of times more effective than typical charities, saving or substantially improving many more lives per dollar. For example, it costs around $50,000 to train a guide dog to help a blind person in a rich nation. But $100 can save a person in a less wealthy nation from the coma-induced blindness. Americans also donate about $450 billion each year, but relatively little goes to the most effective charities. Well, all right, now we know what we're talking about. The stakes are high. On the podcast before, we have often talked about morality. How can we stop people from being selfish and can get them to be kind and help others? But of course, not all kindness is created equal. 
and some forms of helping might be more effective than others. What is this idea of effective giving? I hope that paragraph, as eloquently read by you, uh, says that it gives exactly the idea that I think most people think of, if, you know, the differences in effectiveness in charities as being something like the differences in height, where, you know, like a really tall person might be 30% taller than someone who's not so tall, right? But the differences aren't like 30%, 50%. It can be 50 times, 100 times the difference. And this was kind of a mind-blowing revelation for me when I realized it. And Lucius Caviola, who's the lead on this research, has done a beautiful job documenting that, indeed, it's not just me who was surprised. Most people are surprised by this. And once you realize this, it's like a kind of superpower. It's like just by being normal level or a pretty modest level of altruistic, you're not talking about giving away your kidney or something like that. Just if you have some disposable income or you and five friends have some disposable income, you individually or collectively can save people's lives. And it, on a gut level, I almost feel like I don't really believe it because it's just so extreme, but that's what the evidence quite clearly indicates. And even if the evidence is off by a factor of two or a factor of two, three, it's still overwhelmingly true. Yeah. And then once, once you get that, it's hard not to think, I need to work on this. I need to figure out, like, how do we take advantage of this incredible opportunity that really is a weird feature of the modern world, that for the vast majority of human existence, it's it just hasn't been possible for a normal person with whatever extra resources they have to save the li life of some stranger on the other side of the world. This is just completely bananas from a human psychological historical perspective. And yet we have this ability in the modern world for those of us who have some disposable income. And so it's, yeah, we got to be thinking about how to take, take advantage of this incredible opportunity. I have a confession to make. When I first ran into the idea of effective giving in the different books I was reading and podcasts I was listening to, that was not my takeaway. My takeaway was not, oh, what a superpower I have. My yeah. takeaway was, oh, these people are annoying. They're telling me I'm a bad person. I yeah. am not doing any good. I am wasting yeah. my money. Yeah. Here I am donating to a local charity or church that I care yeah. about. And these people are telling me I'm not a good person. Is yeah. that a reaction you ever get from people? Absolutely. And I think people experience this information. A lot of people experience it not the way I described it. That's how I look at it now. And that's how at least part of me looked at it initially, but not all of me. But I think a lot of people experience this information as a net loss. And I think it has to do with our motivations for being altruistic. That is, we want to do things that connect directly with our values and interests. As humans, what motivates us historically to be good is a kind of social connection that what gives our brain a sort of a, a joy buzz is doing the kinds of things for other people that whether we're thinking about it at the time or not could come back to us in some good way, either directly as in direct reciprocity or indirectly as in you're a good member of this community and this community will be good to you. And that's not to say that good moral people think about it in transactional terms. It's actually quite the opposite. That is, we have emotions that just guide us to do these things, but those emotions are tuned in ways for getting along well within the tribe. 
So all this to say is that our psychology is not designed to find this very weird, modern, peculiar form of altruism rewarding. And people naturally do the kind of altruistic things that people naturally do and feel good about it. And then the person who's a proponent of effective giving comes along and says, uh-uh, you think you're doing a lot of good, but really you're doing much, much less good than you could. And you should stop doing these things that make you feel good and feel good about yourself and instead do this other thing that feels cold and antiseptic. And that's like a lot of people experience this as ruining altruism for them, or at least there's the kind of threat of that. And one way to respond to that is to fight the idea and say, I don't believe the data. I don't think it's really true. Or to characterize it as this cold and human philosophical perspective. And I get that. And I guess this is a good segue into the research, because what we've been trying to do is figure out how to meet people where they are psychologically while making, and as a result, make effective giving more more attractive. But yes, absolutely. That is exactly the tension I think that we're dealing with in the psychology of effective giving. So how do we make that trade-off between I'm so glad you good about uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you have yeah. research on this which yeah. might lead to a project called the giving multiplier that yeah. I would love for you to introduce to us. Yeah, great. Research. Well so you did a lovely job of reading the sort of setup for that. So the background on this is I was convinced to take effective giving seriously in a sort of classic philosophical way. So I, as a philosopher, I'm, I've always thought we should be doing as much good as possible measured in impersonal terms. That's consequentialism or more specifically utilitarianism, which I think is a terrible term because it just immediately gives people the wrong idea. I prefer to call it deep pragmatism. That's another whole discussion. But this idea that we should really be thinking about trying to do as much good as possible, that always made sense to me. Coming from the classic proponents of this idea like John Stuart Mill, but then also in our lifetimes, Peter Singer. And I tried convincing people as a kind of psychological experiment in the same way that Peter Singer convinced me. And actually, some of this work was done in collaboration with Peter Singer, where, you know, so Peter Singer has this classic drowning child example, right? You're walking by the pond and there's the child who's drowning and you could save them, but you're going to ruin your expensive suit if you do that. And you say, is it okay to let the child drown because of your suit? And most people say, no, that would be terrible. And Peter says, say, Peter Singer says, if it's wrong to not save the child because you're worried about your suit, isn't it also wrong to not do something about children on the other side of the world who are drowning in poverty, badly in need of food and medicine or whatever it is, and shouldn't you be doing and a lot of people have the same kind of combination of reactions to his argument. Some people say, of course, and it changes their lives. And a lot of people don't have that reaction. And what we found, or even have a very negative reaction, and what we found in our experiments, giving people versions of this kind of argument, some more rationally oriented, some more emotionally oriented, is that it doesn't have that much effect in aggregate. There are a small number of people who really respond and most people just go, interesting, yeah, but no. I was struggling this, with this for a long time. And then Lucius Caviola, my fantastic postdoc, came along. And in our discussions, we thought, what if we took a different approach? Instead of <clears throat> trying to convince people that instead of doing what they really want to do, they should do this other thing. What if we just said, hey, why don't you do both? So we ran our sort of first super simple experiment, which was just in one condition, uh, 
we have people make the normal choice where we say, pick your favorite charity. And then we say, here's this super effective deworming charity that can treat people parasitic worm infections for less than a dollar. We're going to give you, we're, we do these things probabilistically. So there's a hundred dollars and it's going to go one place or the other. And if you're chosen, your choice now will decide where it goes. So which do you want to do? And there, what we found is that 80% of people chose the charity that they picked their favorite charity. Although 20% of people, which actually is high in a way, chose chose the charity that experts recommend is super duper effective. But in the experimental condition, we had those two choices, all to your personal favorite, all to the super effective charity that we're recommending, or a 50-50 split. And what we found was about 50% of people, a little over 50% in our first experiment, chose the 50-50 split. And as a result, in that condition, more money ended up going to the highly effective charity than in the other in in the original condition that people really like that 50-50 split option enough that even though they're only giving half more pe- enough people more are choosing it that more overall goes there and some people still give everything to the highly effective charity as well so we're like okay this is interesting but then first we did some experiments to try to figure out what's going on psychologically so one is it that people really like this what we call a favorite effective split or is it just, just people like splitting? There's some research suggesting that people just like to split. There's an experiment showing that it's not just that people like to split. There's something about this combo that's especially appealing. And we also try to figure out why is it appealing? And the short answer is goes something like this. When you're giving from the heart, when you're giving for something that you really just care about in an emotional way, the amount is not so important. So giving half to your favorite charity, $50, let's say, versus giving $100 to your favorite charity, that feels about the same. And what that means is that if you only give half, you have this other half that you can do something with, and you could do something that gives you a different kind of satisfaction, namely the kind of satisfaction of doing something really smart and really effective. So the 50-50 bundle gives you kind of two satisfactions at once. It gives you most of the satisfaction, scratching that itch of supporting your personal favorite charity. And then you get this other kind of satisfaction of doing this highly effective thing. And so we had a series of experiments that showed that. We also had one where we asked people to evaluate hypothetical people who either gave all to their favorite or all to the effective or the 50-50 split. And we found was that the people who gave all to their personal favorite charity, they were rated as very warm, but not so competent. And the people who gave to the highly effective charity were rated as highly competent, but not so warm. But the people who did the bundle gave to 50, did the 50-50 split were rated as highly warm and highly competent. And you can think of this in terms of reputation, but I actually think of it more in terms of one's own self-image and also just the kind of the structure of one's motivation. So the short and long of it is on a psychological level, this has this nice property of allowing you to give from the heart and with your head at the same time. And people really like that. And then we thought, okay, so we think we understand what's going on here. But if we just said, hey, world, make 50-50 splits between highly effective charities and ones that you otherwise find personally meaningful, the world probably just wouldn't go ahead and do that. So we thought we need some way to motivate and incentivize people to do this if we wanted this to have an impact in the real world. So we had a very obvious thought, which is what if we paid people extra? What if we added money on top of both the people's donations? And unsurprisingly, people like it even better if you add money on top. But then this raises a very basic practical question. Okay, but where's that money going to come from? And then we had the thought, well, what if we asked people after they've made their donation and taken some matching funds, would you take the part 
of your of your donation that was going to go to this highly effective charity that you hadn't heard of until two minutes ago, put it into a matching fund that would fund up the matching funds for other people. So it's a pay it forward sort of thing. And that could be even more effective than donating directly because you could encourage someone to do the same thing. And what we found is that about a third of the people were like, okay, yeah, I'll put the money in the matching fund. But two thirds of people didn't. But the people who put into the matching fund and put all of that half into the matching fund, that was enough to fund the donation matches for the other people. So it looked like this could be self-sustaining. But we thought, huh, let's try this in the real world. Lucius and some of his tech developer friends, Fabio Kuhn and Daniel Ruthaman, I hope I'm getting that, built this website which just basically does what we did in our the experiment. We called it Giving Multiplier. And if you Google givingmultiplier.org, um, you can check it out for yourself. In fact, remind me later, we'll create a code for this. So we'll do Stanford Psychology, and that'll give you a higher matching rate on there. So you can go there and use the Stanford Psychology higher matching rate. But what will happen if you go there is you there's a field where you can search for any charity that's registered in the U.S., and then you'll see a description of, at the moment, we have nine charities that we support currently that are in different domains, but all highly effective in their own way. So some are global health and poverty, which is what we focused on in a discussion before. So deworming treatments and vaccinations and vitamin A supplements and trachoma surgeries and things like that. Then we have some animal welfare charities. Humane League, for example, focuses on quality of life for factory farmed animals or agricultural animals, which is where there's much more leverage than improving the lives of companion animals, even though that's what people tend to care most about personally. And then another one that's creating alternative meat, including things like Impossible Foods, which was birthed at Stanford to the great honor of your institution. Um, And those are very high impact ways of improving animal welfare. And then we have things that are more of long-term, like preventing the next pandemic and, and, moving towards sustainable energy and relevant policy. And yeah, those are those, I may be missing something, but those are the ones that are coming to mind. So those are our kind of current set. And then you put in how much you want to give overall. And then we have our cool little slider thing where you decide how you want to split it. 50, 50, 80, 20, you have to give at least 10% to a highly effective charity, but otherwise it's up to you with, and then the more you give, the more you allocate to the super effective charity from our list, the more money we add on top. And at the moment, if you do all too effective, all to our super effective charity or one of them, we'll match one-to-one. And if you do a 50-50 split, we'll add 50% on top, which is a much higher rate than we ever thought we would get to. But it works because some people choose to support the matching fund directly. So there are enough people who are doing that that make this all possible. Anyway, and then you can support the matching fund either directly or after. Uh, So that's how the site works. And I'm delighted to say that it's been successful way beyond anything that we thought was possible. Like we thought if we were like one step above bake sale, like maybe if we raised ten, twenty thousand dollars, we'd be super excited about that. And so far, we're up to over two point three million dollars that we've raised. And over a million of that has gone to our super duper effective charities. And a lot of it has gone to other great charities, Doctors Without Borders, that's not on our list, but nevertheless does incredibly good work. And we also track the amount that's counterfactual. That is, how much would people have given if it weren't for giving multiplier? Because one thing you might say is maybe these are just people who are giving here but would have given the same thing other places. And our data suggests that most people are supporting these highly effective charities 
are would not have otherwise if it weren't for giving multiplier, which makes us feel really great about what we're doing and tells us that we're really expanding the circle of effective giving. So that is the giving multiplier story in a, in, in, in a nutshell. And uh, yeah, we're excited to, to move this forward. And what's so beautiful about the webpage as I'm looking at it now is how straightforward it is. So as someone who often has this vague sense of, I want to help the world <laughs> and I don't know what that means, right? There's social media, there's constant, there's an infinite number of things to be outraged about all the time to an infinite extent, because everything is always horrible. Yeah. But that makes it very hard. So it gives me this urge of, I want to help somehow. How do I do this? And it's very, yeah. it's a very straightforward thing to do it. How do you think about the potential of reputational concerns? So people can brag about how smart they are, but they can't really brag about how kind they are because that kind of defeats yeah. the whole purpose. It's right. been interesting. So we we instituted a share option. So when you give through Giving Multiplier, there's a very convenient button that says share on Facebook, share on Twitter. I shouldn't say this, but I, I, since you ask, I'll be on it. Very few people do it. I would love it if people yeah. did it more. If I say people should do it more, they probably won't because for the reason that you gave, which is that people really, it's such an obvious kind of, it's not even a humble brag necessarily. I guess you could frame it as, oh, I'm honored to have whatever. I don't know. But it's, yeah, people are reluctant to do that. And we're trying to think of ways to leverage the social aspect of this in ways that is appealing to people. But just, hey, tell your friends that you gave through Giving Multiplier. Um, it has not been as, as popular. Some people do it, and I think they look great. But there's a kind of reluctance reluctance there. Yeah. There's also an interesting moral conundrum about this, where you can have people do kind things, but only for themselves, only so they look good. People who are like, I will save the world and conveniently take pictures of myself feeding the starving children in Africa graciously. Yeah. And yeah. it's clearly just about them and not about the people actually receiving the help, but they might yeah. still be helping. And so that's an interesting philosophical conundrum to think about that I wouldn't ask a psychologist, but you also train as a philosopher. So I'll yeah. ask you about it. My view as a philosopher is that we should be more comfortable with people being public about the good that they do. So I, if you look at someone who's kind of posing in a, with their morally virtuous behavior, I think instead of saying, oh, you're just doing that to, to show off, signal your virtue, I would say, you know what? It's probably a combination. The person probably really wants to help. And they also probably want to be thought of as a good person. And you know what? That's not so bad. And it, I'd much rather live in a world where people, yeah, maybe advertise their virtue a bit. But if what they're doing is really good and it encourages other people to do it, it's much more important to encourage other people to do the same than it is to be modest about one's good deeds. So I, I would like to have a culture where people can brag a little bit more about the good things that they do as long as that bragging actually has a has a net positive effect. It's think about the difference in in if what you did encourages someone to prevent somebody else from going blind. Isn't preventing somebody else from going blind much more important than not bragging once? <laughs> it's like the scales of these things are just they're completely different. So eh, brag a little bit. It's okay. As long as what you're doing is super effective. I notice a certain pragmatism here that I think yes. speaks to a more general <laughs> effort maybe in your lab recently, as you have told me, to appeal to psychological tendencies and biases and heuristics people already have and use 
to get them to do good. And you were vaguely referencing a certain quiz game to bridge partisan politics that yeah. I don't even know what I'm really asking you about because it's okay. so cutting edge. You just, before the recording, told me you are now ready to talk about it. So what is this game and how does it appeal to the same idea of being pragmatic yeah. about people's tendencies? Yeah, there are a ton of people interested in working on political polarization and affective polarization and the rise of anti-democratic attitudes and practices. And Stanford, including the labs you work in, has been uh, le le leading the way on this. And this is something that I, a grad student, Evan DeFilippis, started thinking about around the time that Trump was elected. And I was coming at this from originally more evolutionary and biological perspective. And in my book, Moral Tribes, I synthesized a lot of work in biology and behavioral economics and anthropology. And the conclusion there is that, and this is not at all original to me, but I think, but it's not completely uncontroversial, that the fundamental principle of social life is mutually beneficial cooperation. That is what creates everything more complicated than RNA. Our molecules come together to form cells and cells come together to form colonies, which form multicellular creatures, which form social animals, which form smart hypersocial animals like us who then form tribes and chiefdoms and city-states and nations and occasionally even United Nations, that the story of life on Earth is the story of cooperation and conflict and increasing levels of complexity. So I thought, okay, this is the answer to, to, to uniting the tribes. It's funny because in my book, I was focused on philosophy. I was like, what's the right metamorality? What's the right philosophy for tribes living in a multi-tribal world? And then it turned out that my book didn't create a deep pragmatist revolution. I've gotten some positive feedback, but it didn't change the world. And I thought, okay, what would it take to really put this into action? Uh, and that got me thinking, all right, so what about action instead of philosophy? And I thought coming from the background that I was steeped in is that the key is mutually beneficial cooperation. And then I remembered from my old so social psychology class that I used to teach. This is not a new idea. In fact, it's some of the most familiar classic ideas in inter intergroup relations. So you have contact theory going back to Gordon Alport, who says that the way to overcome prejudice is to have contact between groups, but not any old contact. It has to meet certain conditions. And it's not exactly focused on mutually beneficial cooperation, but it's framed in terms of things like equal status, shared purpose. And so it has that kind of flavor that you got to get the contact. And then there's this other tradition Uh, most classically associated with Sharif and the famous robbers cave studies where you have the summer camp with the boys and they're put into two different groups. And just by having them in competition, animosity erupts between them. But then you put them on the same team and they have to pull the truck with the camp's food out of the mud and then they all become friends. It turns out Sharif and Sharif were leading. It wasn't a model of 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 experimental hygiene, let's put it that way. But the ideas have been supported a lot in other ways and in international relations theory, training partners don't go to war with each other and things like that. So I thought, okay, all these things are coming together on this idea of mutually beneficial cooperation as being the thing. And and Evan DeFilippis, I should say, had come to similar thinking from his own background and experience. So we thought, how do we create mutually beneficial cooperation between tribes And in a way that could be scalable. So we thought create a kind of game where people can play as partners. So that's what we did. So we created this quiz game where we have 
originally I was often I was thinking about this as maybe about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then post-Trump it was like you don't have to go around the world to find <laughs> tribal animosity. So we said, okay, we're going to focus on the United States. So we created this quiz game where Republicans and Democrats play as partners, and and then in, this is a randomized control trial. So we in the experimental condition you have a Republican and a Democrat repaired together, and then in the control conditions you have two Democrats or two Republicans. And and we set it up so that they come together online, they fill out a little form about themselves. What's your favorite color? Do you like the mountains or the beach? What's your superpower? And also what's your politics? And then they take a quiz on each other's information so that they know, so we know that they know who they're playing with. And then they're connected by a chat, they get to know each other, and then the game begins. And their scores, they're on the same team. So they have the same score and they win the same amount of money for each question that they get right. And they have to, they can record a private answer, which is what do I think the right answer is? And then they meet where they, they chat where they have to agree on their joint answer. And early in the game, it's very basic culture, geography stuff like, you know, what state is Mount Rushmore in? And, and then in the, in, in the second phase, Evan did a ton of research to figure out what do Republicans know that Democrats don't and vice versa about stuff that's not directly about politics. For example, this is true based on data, not just stereotypes. If you ask what's the name of the family on the show, Duck Dynasty, Republicans are much more likely to know the answer. But if you ask about the name of the lead character on the show, Stranger Things, Democrats are more likely to know. So we have these questions that are designed to have this kind of knowledge complementarity, but not about politics. And there, it's not threatening because it's, I don't care if there's stuff about shows that I don't watch, but hey, I like it when that wins me money and wins us money. And it eases people in, they like the game. They get that they're benefiting from their partner. And then in the final phase, you get political questions like what percentage of gun deaths in the U.S. involve assault style weapons? And Democrats think it's 30 percent, 50 percent, and Republicans think it's 2 percent. In this case, the Republicans are right. It actually is quite low. And then but there are other questions like about rates of crime among immigrants where Republicans tend to think that it's very high. Democrats think it's low. And in that case, the Democrats are right. So they kind of trade off, you know, they could each see that sometimes you're right, sometimes I'm right. It's actually interesting because sometimes they'll say things like, one of us is wrong, but I don't know who, and they have to guess. But the point is that they have this experience of sometimes I'm right, sometimes you're right, and we benefit when we work together and agree on an answer. So that's the intervention is basically creating this opportunity for this mutually beneficial cooperation across this line of division. And we do a lot of standard measures after this, and in some cases before as well, feeling thermometer, how warm or cold do you feel towards the Republicans or towards the Democrats? How would you divide $100 between a random Republican or a random, a random Democrat? And then borrowing some cues actually from researchers, actually, I guess it's some Stanford and some otherwise, Berkeley, David Bruckman and Joshua Kalla, um, on anti-democratic practices. So would you support a candidate who refuses to accept election outcomes that are unfavorable. And what we find for our primary measures of feeling thermometer and dividing money, we haven't done long-term on the anti-democratic stuff. We see effects there short-term. The long-term effects, we see effects up to four months. And actually, it could be more than four months. So we see with some of these things uh, from playing the game for less than an hour. And then we've done some work to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Do you need to have the political content? And it seems like it, it can work, although probably not quite as well if you just use cultural knowledge questions instead of the politically charged things. 
And we've been playing with a one-player game, and at least in the studies that are going into this first paper, having just input from the other side but not having that interaction doesn't seem to produce an effect, although we have more recent research that says maybe there are ways to get around to, to boost that. But basically, the finding is that if you put Republicans and Democrats on the same team, playing with their identities as Republicans and Democrats, you see these surprisingly durable effects after playing the game for only an hour. So that's and so to tie this in with the giving multiplier idea, I think what's different about this intervention from a lot of the other things that are out there. So a lot of what's out there are informational things. One of the leading ideas developed by my colleague Mina Chakara is this idea of meta-perception correction, where you tell people, how much, what do you think the opposite party thinks of you? Here's what they actually think of you, and it's not as bad as you thought. That has turned out to be very reliable. And other things like showing people being cooperative. But our thought was, what we were hoping to do is create something that would actually be fun, that people would actually want to do and do more than once. And so we asked people for enjoyability ratings on this. And the mean ratings for both Republicans and Democrats are like nine out of nine point something out of 10. In fact, in our most or out of our 90 something out of 100. In our last study, we used a 10 point scale and the median enjoyment rating was 10. So people, at least in a research context, so it's not where people are expecting to have a blast, but and, and people really enjoy this. And they leave like we require everybody to leave at least something in a comment and like, in one of our experiments, over 50% of people mentioned that it was fun. So our thinking is that this is the kind of thing that works and it has pretty good lasting effects. And it's the kind of thing that people would actively seek out as opposed to informational messages about things like that. This is not to disparage that other work, but it's not a game, right? So our hope is that maybe this could work in the real world. And another thing that I think is really cool about this is there's been a lot of dialogue initiatives, bringing people together to talk things out. And those are great. I support that. The more, the more, the better. But I think when it comes to having dialogue, you're likely to get people who are self-selected for at least being somewhat open-minded and reasonable. Whereas with playing a quiz game, especially a quiz game where you could win some money, you're more likely to bring in people who have no interest in bridge building but who think they're smart and are happy to play a game and pick up a few bucks. So our hope with this is that it can be, it, it, the fact that it's enjoyable will make people seek it out and come back for more. And the fact that it's a game and a game where you can win money would bring people in who otherwise would not be interested in, in, in bridge building. So we are working on trying to take this out of the lab and into the world and we'll see how that goes. But that's but in terms of connecting it to giving multiplier, they both are on this theme of meeting people where they are, offering people something that they already want. Instead of saying, hey, don't give to that charity, give to this one that's much more effective. You say, hey, why don't you do both? And we'll add money on top. And with this, instead of saying, hey, have a dialogue with these people who you despise, watch this message that will make you more open minded. We're just saying, hey, play a game, win some money if you're smart. And the hope is that connecting with people's existing motivations will enable this to have a, have a little bit more of a boost. That's the idea. Wow. Yeah, building on this, people who think a lot about how to give effectively and make the world a better place, they also have strong opinions about what jobs to have to make the world a better place. And they might say something like, you should study artificial intelligence, or you should yeah. go into finance so you have a lot of money and yeah. donate that to all the good causes. How do you yeah. think about 
the calling that researchers might have. And if we have a potential or even responsibility to try to understand people and then use that somehow for the greater good. Yeah. So this is, this has been my motivation in, in, in doing this. And, um, there have, there have been discussions among people who think about effective altruism, which has been a whole can of worms recently. And we probably don't want to get into it. And, and I just, I'll just say as a blanket statement, all the bad stuff, I'm not, I don't support that, but the basic idea of trying to use your mind and your talents, do good in the world. And that I do support and thinking about, uh, careers is a really important thing. And I think there has been a focus on either making money and then using it to do good or focusing on these certain kind of what people call X risk, existential risks. Artificial intelligence could kill us all, which sounds less crazy in 2023 than it did in 2021. Now that people have had a chance to play around with chat GPT, but, but nevertheless, I don't think that's the only way to have an impact that or focusing on biosecurity. I, my push is, as I said, I think that the story of life on earth is a story of cooperation and increasing levels of complexity. And our fundamental social challenge right now is how do we build cooperation at the post tribal level? I think what's tearing the United States apart right now are two competing visions, vision of the United States as a home for primarily white Christians to be led by males or as a more multi-tribal, multi-ethnic, multi-religion, multi-gender identity and sexuality world. And how do, how do we get there? I think that the, the only way we're going to get there is by having, by thinking of ourselves as on the same team. And so that's why I'm taking this approach. Now that informs this specific project, but more generally, I think if you're concerned about blowing ourselves up with nukes or creating AI that ends up crushing us or create engineering a pandemic that destroys everybody, our best hope for dealing with all of those things is good governance. And right now, the fundamental obstacle to good governance is tribalism. And so I would like to see more people who are explicitly thinking, how do I do as much good as I can with my talents and resources, thinking about how do we create a more cooperative nation and a more cooperative world? Not at the interpersonal level, because I think people are already pretty good at that, uh, but at the regional and national level. And I think ultimately it does depend on personal behavior, but you need to have a strategy that's okay, but how do we really get from here to there? And that's what I'm thinking about these days. And I'm working on a book that's about thinking, okay, we've been doing this research with games, but what would it mean to really bring people together outside of a game context in, in, in real life? And so that's what's on my mind. And I would love to spread that idea as a kind of mission among social scientists or scientists more generally or other social entrepreneurs or wh whoever has the power to to build those bridges. That's very exciting. And it speaks to a general human tendency to care about cooperation and to fall into tribalistic patterns that is not specific to the US. So yeah. we were talking about effective giving globally and not just locally. Do you think it's fair to say that psychologists are very obsessed with the United States and the problems that this country is certainly facing, but maybe at the risk of neglecting all the other problems everywhere else to some extent? Yeah, I certainly think that has been true historically. I actually think that in recent years, there's been much more awareness of 
the importance of not just studying college undergraduates in the United States and not just uh, people in convenience samples online, but really looking across cultures and seeing what the broader patterns are. So I actually think we're moving in the right direction there. And I'm hoping to take this mutually beneficial cooperation work to other places, but we have a long way to go for sure. Yeah. So that was a question about psychology in general. I wonder about the field of moral psychology in yeah. particular as yeah. one of the people who was really shaping the field and has been shaping the field for many years. And there were many past debates that we don't even have the time to get into of the role of intuition versus reason. Yeah. That was a very big theme and a somewhat of a theme. Where do you think the field is moving or maybe should be moving in the coming years and decades? I, in my early work, the kind that you're referring to, mine was all with convenience samples, Americans. And I am delighted that other people have taken that line of research and, and looked at it more cross-culturally. I think probably the, to me, the most salient example is recently there was a paper published in Nature Human Behavior looking at some very kind of fine-grained trolleological findings. So this is like what makes people say that it's wrong to push the guy off the footbridge, but it's okay to save five lives, that is, versus not, but it's okay to hit a switch that turns the trolley away from one or five people and onto one. And we have this paper a while back saying that there are two things that are working there and that interact. One is a force, so pushing with your hands or with a pole as opposed to hitting a switch. And then the other is if you're harming the person as a means versus as a side effect, are you using the person as a trolley stopper or are you doing something that then incidentally as a side effect ends up harming them? And this fantastic paper looked at these, this looked for these effects of countries all around the world and found that in, in general, those patterns held up with some caveats. I can't remember. I think everything held up in the Western cluster and then Maybe there were certain aspects of it that were indeterminate other places. But the point is not whether everything replicates ex exactly or with some nuances, but that they went out and looked at, at the wider world and saw what was consistent and what was not. I think more generally, the field of moral psychology has broadened. I'm delighted that people continue to use hypothetical moral dilemmas. I think that they have a kind of value in the same way that, you know, Things like flashing checkerboards for vision research are valuable because they drive the cognitive system in a very stark sort of way. But I think it's good that people have tried to get more look at real world behavior and and economic decisions with real stakes. And I think those are those are those are good things. So I think we're expanding our toolkit and our reach culturally, methodologically, and so I view the field as very healthy. As we are coming to an end and running out of time, I want to zoom out. You have been alluding to your changes in thinking over the last couple of years and what has been on your mind. I wonder about young Josh Green. If I had done this podcast with teenage or college age Josh Green, would he have been concerned about the same issues in moral psychology, moral philosophy? Were these things that were on his mind? Was he concerned about very different things? How persistent have these themes been in your life? Pretty persistent, but with very different emphases. So I started doing, I started thinking about morality and to some extent moral psychology semi-seriously, like when I was in junior high school, like when I was 
12 or 13, because I started doing debate. And so I got very interested in these central philosophical questions, at least in the Western tradition, about Kantian deontological ethics versus utilitarian consequentialist ethics. And that's what got me thinking about all this stuff. And then early on, I started thinking about the psychology behind our intuitions and when can we trust them and when can we not. So you would have, you could go surprisingly far back in my weird case and see a lot of the same concerns. Things that have changed for me now, I think I, I've become less concerned about meta ethics. Like my dissertation was about, is there any ultimate fact about what's right or wrong? And I think it's still an interesting and important question, but I think it's of less practical importance than I thought it was at the time. And my, my book actually started out thinking of it as I'm going to do a book version of my dissertation, which was about <laughs> metaethics. And like the ship of Theseus, it went through so many iterations that like by the time it actually got published, it was focused on a rather different overlapping, a rather different set of questions. And then, as I said before, at that point, I was still my core focus was on moral psychology as a way to get underneath our intuitions and by changing our views of our intuitions do have better ideas about what our moral philosophy should be or what our moral values should be. And then, as I said, I had a shift after the book where I was like, I'm less interested in using psychology to understand or defend certain views about moral philosophy I really want to just now focus on using our understanding of human nature and human behavior to just try to put my moral beliefs and values into practice. And so that's what I've been focused on and more, more recently with Giving Multiplier and Red Ray Blue Brain and one or two other, other, other recent projects. I also have this other whole line of research, which was birthed by the amazing Stephen Franklin in my lab on understanding uh, what you might technically call multimodal compositional semantics, or if you want to be a bit more theory-laden about it, understanding the language of thought. And that's been exciting to work on as well. And that's been, to me, it's all ultimately related. Like I think of it as what are the distinctive features of human individual intelligence? And that's what I view the sort of compositional cognition as being about. And then what are the essential features of our collective intelligence? And that's, that's what, how I, so if I were going to tie those two things together, that's how I see it. But in recent years, the focus has been either on these basic questions in cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience about how thinking works and how it's possible. And then these questions about how can we make better decisions as a society and what kind of uh, interventions or opportunities do we need to forge a more or more cooperative society. So that's one way of describing the evolution there. Oh man, these podcast conversations always end before I want them to. But I, <laughs> since we don't have infinite amounts of time, we will have to stop here. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. That was really terrific. Oh, thanks. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And, and it's a great pleasure to be on the Stanford Psychology Podcast. I'm a fan of so much of what you folks do there and hope I can come out and visit in not too long. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode, or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us.
Thank you so much.